This is Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Mark Maselli. And I'm Margaret Flinter. Well, Margaret, interesting report out of Kaiser Health News last week, in spite of the dire predictions to the contrary in the run-up to the healthcare laws, addition of millions of Americans gaining insurance coverage. The primary care system in America has not been crushed under the weight of these new enrollees. Well, Mark, you remember opponents of the Affordable Care Act have been uh, predicting that new patient populations would inundate the health care system, causing delays and backlogs in the primary care space. But the Kaiser report that's out shows the system is doing a pretty good job of absorbing the new health care consumers with the largest expansion of health care in 50 years. A quick survey of health systems around the country show that, for the most part, systems have been able to handle the influx of the some 13 million newly insured individuals, either through the private insurances or the Medicaid expansion. So a uh, prediction that did not come to pass. It should be noted, Margaret, there are some parts of the country where there have been higher utilization from those new patients, Washington State, California, Kentucky, all who had successful enrollment efforts. There have been some delays in getting Medicaid's cards out to people, but there's a sense that folks are feeling empowered to utilize the healthcare system and are learning to navigate it as well. Well, I think everybody would agree that uh, the country is still in a bit of a learning curve, but you know, I think compared to years gone by, our healthcare system maybe is a little more adaptable uh, and a population that has much better access to getting information about what to do and how to use it. And all that bodes well, I think. Our guest today is someone who has had his eye on transformation of the healthcare system moving forward. Dr. Harry Greenspun is a senior advisor to the Deloitte Center for Healthcare Transformation and Technology at the Deloitte Center for Health Solutions. He's also working at the intersection of health information and healthcare delivery and has examined how healthcare systems are being transformed. Lori Robertson will be checking in from factcheck.org. She is always on the hunt for misstatements about health policy spoken in the public domain. But no matter what the topic, you can hear all of our shows by Googling CHC Radio. And as always, if you have comments, please email us at chcradio.com or find us on Facebook or Twitter. We'd love hearing from you. We'll get to our interview with Dr. Harry Greenspan in just a moment. But first, here's our producer, Marianne O'Hare, with this week's headline news. I'm Marianne O'Hare with these healthcare headlines. The VA coming under more scrutiny in the wake of several dozen deaths due to delayed treatment at a VA hospital in Phoenix, Arizona. While the director of that VA hospital has been replaced, the Secretary of Veterans Affairs Administration has come under a barrage of criticism. Defense Secretary Chuck Hagel has said he supports Secretary Eric Shinseki, but adds the care veterans are receiving is simply not good enough. Recently, reports surfaced that as many as 40 veterans may have died while waiting for medical care from the VA hospital in Phoenix. Veterans have also waited years in some cases to collect benefits from the administration. The American Legion and some in Congress have called for Shinseki's ouster. Hagel admitted many of these issues were longstanding and have plagued the department since long before Shinseki took the helm. The matter continues to be investigated. Meanwhile, dire warnings of a major logjam at the nation's primary care practices in the wake of the Affordable Care Act have not come to pass since 13 million Americans have either gained coverage under the Medicaid expansion or through private insurance on the exchanges. Analysis of the nation's practices shows that, for the most part, there hasn't been a major backlog. The joint survey by the Kaiser Family Foundation and USA Today shows while there's been an uptick in business, it hasn't been crippling, though there are pockets where health centers in certain parts of the country are seeing some strain from the influx of new clients. And there have been some delays in people receiving their Medicaid cards. 
but overall primary care systems and community health centers seem to be able to handle the influx of this new patient population. And while we grapple with the concept of access to care for all in this country, one third world country is seeing dramatic results in one year from a concerted health policy shift. Thailand has seen a 13 percent drop in one year with its 30 baht program, which essentially makes about $35 per capita available for folks to access health care in that country, especially in more impoverished provinces. A Harvard-MIT study showed the biggest increase in patient usage was young women of childbearing age and infants and children. The survey revealed then the sharp decrease in infant death was a result of parents feeling they had a right to hospital intervention, and most of the diseases were highly treatable, pneumonia, infection, and the like. And modern healthcare is out with its 50 most influential physician executives based on a variety of criteria, and improvement in care delivery seems to have been weighted heavily this go-around. At the top of the list, former director of the CMS Innovation Center, Richard Gilfillan, now president and CEO of CHE Trinity Health, one of the nation's largest healthcare systems. Rounding out the top five, Mayo Clinic president and CEO John Noseworthy, chairman and CEO of Virginia Mason, Gary Kaplan. FDA Commissioner Peggy Hamburg and Artis D. Hoven, President of the American Medical Association. I'm Arianna O'Hare with these healthcare headlines. We're speaking today with Dr. Harry Greenspun, a senior advisor of healthcare transformation and technology at the Deloitte Center for Health Solutions, which is addressing key health information technology and clinical transformation. Prior to that, Dr. Greenspun was chief medical officer for Dell Inc. Uh, he writes extensively on healthcare, is co-author of Reengineering Healthcare, a manifesto for radically rethinking healthcare delivery. He serves on the World Economic Forum Global Agenda Council on Digital Health and was named one of the 50 most influential physician executives in healthcare by Modern Healthcare. He earned his bachelor's degree from Harvard, his medical degree from the University of Maryland, completed his residency in anesthesiology at John Hopkins. Uh, Dr. Greenspan, welcome to Conversations on Healthcare. Oh, great to be here. Uh, we're in this incredible transformational shift in the healthcare system. And while we had a few bumps on the road, of rolling out the Affordable Care Act, uh, things seem to be uh, moving forward. The number of enrollees finally exceeded the uh, administration's uh, initial hopes. Uh, but your book, 2012, co-written by uh, Jim Champy, Reengineering Healthcare, suggests that something else needs to be done to really radically transform healthcare for the better. Um, can you talk to us about this radical redesign and how th there's any interplay between the efforts of the Affordable Care Act and the direction you see the country moving? Well, sure. I mean, when you think about a lot of what healthcare has done to improve itself has been, been to make sort of like small incremental changes. You know, how can you get a physician to see, you know, a couple more patients per hour? Um, how do you move people more efficient, uh, efficiently through a hospital? And if you really want to transform a system, you have to really do things differently. You have to have different models of care. You have to different, have different types of people providing those kinds of care. Um, and you also have to change the focus on what you're caring for. Are you focusing on uh, doing sick care or acute care treatment, or are you going to focus more on prevention and wellness? So that's really what we're getting at with um, how do you redesign a system. Now, it's interesting when we look at the Affordable Care Act um, and um, related uh, issues that are going on in the industry, we're moving from uh, a reimbursement model of paying physicians and hospitals for the volume of work they do to the value of work that they do, so the outcomes they achieve. And that creates a lot of different types of behavior and lots of new 
uh, new opportunities to uh, provide innovation where if um, you know physicians and hospitals are responsible for uh, not just doing a good job when you're in front of them but also making sure you stay healthy and uh, you uh, help make good choices and um, when care gets transferred from uh, person to person or facility to facility that that gets done effectively and that opens some like I said some really interesting doors for innovation well dr. Greensman for this uh, show we spend a lot of time speaking with innovators in the healthcare space who have really attempted to do what you're describing, uh, reinventing the wheel by rebuilding systems from the ground up, and always with those three pillars that you talk about in your work, technology, process, and people. Perhaps you could break down why transformation has to occur across these three pillars really kind of simultaneously, and what does that re-engineering process look like, and, and who in the country do you think has really gotten it right so far and maybe is poised to be the models for others to follow? You know, you see a, a lot of interesting innovation, and you see a lot of people coming in from other industries trying to fix healthcare. And, um, you know, what I, and you have a lot of technology companies uh, specifically trying to do this. You know, with new technologies, what, what the problem they've solved is the technology problem, which is usually not the hard problem to solve. Um, so, uh, you know, they may come up with a better way of presenting information or, you know, some cool app for your phone, but if it doesn't fit into, you know, physician workflow, if it doesn't in, uh, work into how, uh, you know, patient's life flow, they really haven't done much. And you think there have been a lot of technologies that have been um, around for quite some time, uh, you know, telehealth being an example of that. Um, where it really wasn't for a lack of good technology that didn't catch on. It was a reimbursement problem that there were disincentives for physicians to use that. So, uh, you know, unless these uh, technological improvements um, can, uh, you know, address some of these other issues, uh, we're not going to help much. I always say that, you know, a lot of people have a better mousetrap, but they don't really understand the mice. And you see lots of places around the country where you see some really interesting innovation. And it occurs in sort of smaller pockets. You know, we're seeing... Um, you know, emergency rooms uh, create, uh, you know, small urgent care centers on the side. We're seeing uh, a lot of work with that integrated delivery systems like Kaiser and Atlantic Care and others um, have where um, they're able to provide different types of outreach and different types of communication with their patients uh, and to give them information when they need it. You know, technology is important not only on the clinical side, but it uh, proved to be uh one of the uh, difficulties uh, in the rollout of trying to get uh, technology related to enrollment to work successfully. Now, we're from Connecticut, the land of steady habits, and we had Kevin Cunahan, uh, who was the CEO of the Connecticut Exchange on, which had uh, uh, really a remarkable uh, uh, success story to tell. They also had an intersection with uh, Deloitte was part of that success but talk to us a little bit about uh, that technology platform around enrollment, because we're going to see a big shift over the next half a dozen years where the employer-based uh, insurance policy might change really to these large exchanges. Are they equipped to manage them? What do you see out that's good news around technology platforms? Well, you know, I think the lesson we've learned is that the large IT product projects are hard. <laughs> and... Uh, you know, in this first round, what we saw in many exchanges was just, you know, sort of helping people to sign up. And the, the key issue that we're um, going to be looking forward to uh, in the future 
is helping people actually make better decisions of what kind of coverage they need. Because very often, the choices people make and how they get covered don't necessarily align with their particular needs. So, for example, if you take certain medications, as an example, um, one policy may cover those medications better than another. Um, and so, ultimately, you know, the total cost of an individual may, you know, may be less on a different policy. Um, and, you know, it's, it's really about getting appropriate coverage for the right conditions that you have. And that's complicated. Uh, you know, the thought that they can sort of put together what their overall health care needs are going to be during uh, an enrollment period uh, can be difficult. You know, again, we think of, uh, of individuals as consumers, and consumers only need stuff when they need stuff, mm-hmm. right? So, um, and same thing with consumers in healthcare is that you often don't think about catastrophic coverage or different medication coverage until those needs actually arise for you. Well, Dr. Greenspan, you uh, anticipated perfectly what I was just about to ask you about, and that really is the consumer. I think having uh, gotten through the initial phase of the Affordable Care Act, what's coming up is probably the year of the consumer. So um, the Deloitte 2013 survey of healthcare consumers showed a really kind of a decided lack of trust in the healthcare system and its value to the healthcare consumer with over half of those questions, and this really surprised me, rating the healthcare system with a D or an F and half reporting that they pay more out-of-pocket costs for their healthcare than in previous years. What are your thoughts on how do we educate people? We have that problem to solve, how to engage people and get them to plan in advance. What are you seeing around the country? What are the strategies? Is it a social media campaign, a education campaign? We'd love to hear your thoughts on that. You know, number one is that, you know, as you mentioned, most consumers give our healthcare system a pretty low rating. But what's also interesting about that is most people rate our overall system based upon their personal experience. It was like for them to do that. And that extends to how they view quality. When you ask individuals about um, the quality of care that they get. Um, The response back you usually get are things related to, um, you know, what it was like to go to the doctor. Um, You know, were the people nice? Did they listen to you? Could you get an appointment when you wanted to? And, you know, all of us know people who have stayed with a doctor despite a bad outcome, and it's not until they have a problem with the office staff or, you know, the doctor upsets them or something like that that they actually consider shifting. So we have this, this service experience serves as a proxy for, for quality. And so when we think about getting consumers to make better decisions, um, we have to help them understand how to interpret quality and outcome information. And, you know, this information has been available in a lot of states for, you know, New York, uh, New York State, for example, has a great registry on cardiac surgery and cardiology. Consumers use this very little. And I think what we're going to see as we, um, you know, push more of the cost of care into consumers, they're going to have to start thinking more about the value, you know, who's got the, the, the outcomes that they're looking for, but also the service experience they're looking for and safety considerations and other things that are important to them. So giving people the right tools to make those kind of decisions will be important. So, you know, if I need a knee arthroscopy and I find out it's going to cost me, you know, X amount of dollars to go to a particular physician and have that done, that I don't simply skip care, that I'm able to understand how can I find a, a physician who, you know, fits the budget I can afford forward um, with outcomes that are high and the type of service that I want to get. We're speaking today with Dr. Harry Greenspun, Senior Advisor at the Deloitte Center for Health Solutions. Harry, let's look at that proliferation of HIT technology. And we've had a number of guests on the show who've talked extensively about this area, Farzad uh, Mustashari and uh, Patrick Soon-Shong and others. 
But in your book, you talk about uh, what's really needed is this big secure system in the cloud where all health records can be safely accessed. Is that Oz? I I don't know if it's actually possible, but uh, you say that really remains a a distant dream. So what's needed to help achieve uh, that kind of seamless flow of information? Obviously, the technology kind of exists to do this already. We have a couple barriers. I think the very first barrier to think about, um, and we talked about this earlier, is around trust, around privacy. And consumers are very concerned about how their information gets shared, where it gets shared. You know, unlike other areas of your life, like financial services, most healthcare consumers, and it's you know, greater than 50%, are concerned about losing sort of individual pieces of their medical information. And if you think about your own medical history, there's stuff in there that you just don't want other people to know about, and you want some pretty tight controls over that. And on the provider side as well, you've got providers concerned about how their information gets moved around. Um, one of the other things, though, you know, talking about the seamless aspect, is that one of the big problems we have is... Um, you know, starting with, you know, sort of traditional uh, health information technology, electronic health records, um, we have real problem with interoperability about, um, you know, how do you move this data from system to system? Um, you know, do they, they speak the same language? And that's only getting more complicated, and we're addressing it to a degree, but you think about the number of things out there, whether it's, you know, infusion pumps in a hospital, or the Fitbit or fuel band that you wear, or my, my Wi-Fi enabled scale, we have all these new devices out there, you know, that are in us, or around us that are putting out data, and we have to find ways of making the data interoperable so we can do stuff. I mean, interestingly, there's a, a new center being launched, the Center for Medical Interoperability, you know, to try and address this from the provider side because, you know, frankly, the health IT industry has not done a great job of pushing interoperability and making that happen. Well, Dr. Greenspan, this issue of transparency is obviously on a lot of people's minds, and it's, it's transparency across the board, pricing certainly, as well as outcomes, and it was so interesting. Interesting when uh, CMS released uh, the data from close to 900,000 physician encounters with their Medicare, and now, uh, sort of in the word of Todd Parks, the data has been liberated, and lots of researchers and data analysts are mining it. We think we'll start to see some uh, insights into cost and outcomes with the uh, all-payer claim database projects and the Pioneer Accountable Care organizations, and so lots of stuff coming at us, but. What are we going to do with all that information to really uh, drive changes in our understanding of outcomes and price? Um, I got to say, there are going to be plenty of bumps along the road. And this first data dump is a fascinating one because it contains a tremendous amount of data in it. I would be hesitant to say it's information, right? Um, but we have this sort of isolated piece of, in, piece of information about uh, CMS claims. And what you see is all sorts of weird stuff. You see lots of interesting articles popping up of, you know, based on this data, you know, these physicians are, you know, making, you know, gazillions of dollars off of, you know, of this type of procedure or that. And now we're starting to get some explanations around, well, you know, in some places, a single provider code was used for multiple providers or um, drugs or devices are rolled up into these. So it's getting complicated. So, you know, using any, you know, single database or, you know, single data points is very, very challenging to get meaningful information about. But it's an important first step 
for us to understand what's going on in, in cost and quality because as you see in study after study, uh, what people charge and the outcomes they achieve are, are often unrelated. Um, and so we want to be able to help people make a, uh, you know, better decisions. And when I say people, I mean, that's not only patients, that's employers and that's payers and it's the government, um, you know, to understand are they actually achieving the sorts of outcomes they're supposed to achieve for the price that uh, people are paying for it. So, you know, it's important that we get this data out. I mean, again, I, I referenced the, um, uh, the, the cardiac surgery and cardiology outcomes database in New York. You know, again, the question is, you know, can you marry up um, the outcomes information that's available with some of the cost information that's coming out, um, you know, to help folks make better decisions. Um, and, uh, you know, unfortunately, you know, isolated, you know, uh, isolated, uh, you know, pockets of data are not going to get us all the way there, but they're certainly an important first step. You also mentioned the Pioneer ACOs. I think we've seen some interesting things that, um, you know, the early experience with the ACO has been kind of mixed. Uh, and I think it shows that, um, you know, in, in some sense, uh, places that uh, were uh, early adopters of the ACO uh, model, many of them actually were well prepared to be adopters of the ACO model. They were integrated delivery systems or they had um, already invested heavily in IT, and so they were capable of doing that. So they may have not have achieved the sort of... Um, uh, you know, remarkable new results that we expect them to achieve. And the other thing we see is, you know, change is hard, as I mentioned before, uh, and it's going to be a while before we figure out what's the right model, what's the best way to make these things work and be effective. Um, let's talk a little bit about the youth population. It seems that there's a digital divide, if you will, by age in this younger generation, the uh, millennials and the, some of the Gen Ys have certainly been raised uh, in this digital age, and uh, you call them uh, uh, digital omnivores uh, and uh, owners of many uh, different types of devices. And you know, I was sort of thinking back to your comment about trust. Uh, this is a group of, of, of uh, consumers who post what we would say are HIPAA violations on their Facebook all the time, very comfortable about sharing information. How are they going to drive uh, sort of the redesign of how the healthcare industry thinks about sharing information and using technology? Well, I think it would be a very interesting time in the sense that when you, uh, you know, years ago we talked about one of the barriers of, of health IT adoption was, you know, getting physicians to, you know, sort of curmudgeonly doctors, right, to, uh, to adopt these computer things. Um, and you contrast that with, you know, most, you know, younger physicians and those coming out of uh, uh, school, um, you know, they grew up with these devices, as you mentioned, and sort of working without them is really unthinkable. And you're seeing in a lot of practices where, you know, uh, providers really can't uh, recruit new physicians unless they have, um, you know, pretty ex extensive um, electronic health records and other types of systems. On the consumer side, um, you know, it's not as though people's needs have changed, but their expectations have changed pretty dramatically and you think about uh, banking um, several years ago where the um uh, the uh, you know the app that people would use from a bank on your phone would maybe help you find an ATM. You know now people can deposit checks with their phones. They can do all their banking on their phone. Um, and so when they look at healthcare, they compare the kind of service they get in healthcare compared to you know how they make restaurant restaurant reservations or um, you know how they how they travel. Um, they see a big gap. And as I mentioned earlier. You know, when consumers view the service experience as, as the quality, 
um, they're going to start looking at this gap in service as a gap in quality. Um, and I think that's what's going to drive a lot of demand. And it's not only going to be for their own health care. Um, it's going to be as, um, you know, uh, children take uh, uh, care of their uh, uh, elderly parents or as they're taking care of their kids. It's going to become more important for them to have these sorts of tools. And it's going to drive a lot of it. I think the other thing you talked about, the social media aspect of it, um, I just put out a paper called The Four Dimensions of, of M Health. And one of the key things we talked about is as much as healthcare can, you know, uh, uh, lend itself to um, to social media and vice versa, um, you know, that's you know, you see, you know, great work being done in cancer and diabetes and other areas of really engaging people with each other. Um, you know, there are a lot of other conditions don't really lend themselves to that either because uh, they're not fun um, or. Uh, more importantly, there's some real privacy concerns where people are concerned about um, having the information shared. And I think we'll start to see this as people start using these wearable devices, which they've been you know, competing uh, against each other in the fitness and, uh, and wellness kind of area. As it starts moving into healthcare, that people may be more and more reluctant suddenly um, to uh, share some of this information as it pushes in toward the uh, healthcare realm. We've been speaking today with Dr. Harry Greenspun, Senior Advisor for Healthcare Transformation and Technology at the Deloitte Center for Health Solutions. You can learn more about his work by going to Deloitte.com slash U.S. slash Harry Greenspun or follow him on Twitter by going to at Harry Greenspun. Dr. Greenspun, thank you so much for joining us on Conversations on Healthcare today. Conversations on Healthcare, we want our audience to be truly in the know when it comes to the facts about healthcare reform and policy. Lori Robertson is an award-winning journalist and managing editor of FactCheck.org, a nonpartisan, nonprofit consumer advocate for voters that aim to reduce the level of deception in U.S. politics. Lori, what have you got for us this week? Well, during this 2014 election cycle, we've seen several ads that make the claim that the Affordable Care Act is hurting families. It's a very general claim, and it's misleading. Some who bought their own insurance on the individual market could end up paying more. It would depend on what kind of coverage they had before, health conditions, and whether they qualify for subsidies. But millions of uninsured families will gain coverage under the law, many of them through free or low-cost Medicaid or Children's Health Insurance program coverage. And millions of insured families will get those federal subsidies to help pay for coverage. The nonpartisan Congressional Budget Office projects there will be 25 million fewer uninsured due to the law as soon as 2016, and 12 million are expected to gain free or low-cost Medicaid or Children's Health Insurance program insurance. We've seen the hurting families claim in ads in Louisiana, Mississippi, and Nebraska, which are among the 19 states that have decided not to expand Medicaid. But even in those states, the nonpartisan Kaiser Family Foundation estimates that 135,000 residents total would newly join Medicaid because of the law. These are folks who would have been eligible previously but are expected to sign up now, prompted by news about the Affordable Care Act or the individual mandate. Statements about struggling or hurting families attempt to paint the law in black and white when reality isn't so clear-cut. And that's my fact check for this week. I'm Lori Robertson, Managing Editor of FactCheck.org. FactCheck.org is committed to factual accuracy from the country's major political players and is a project of the Annenberg Public Policy Center at the University of Pennsylvania. If you have a fact that you'd like checked, email us at chcradio.com. We'll have FactCheck.org's Lori Robertson check it out for you here on Conversations on Healthcare.
Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Each week, Conversations highlights a bright idea about how to make wellness a part of our communities and everyday lives. Asthma is one of the leading causes of trips to the emergency room for children, and there are often a correlation between high-density, low-income neighborhoods and more trips to the hospital for treatment and intervention. When officials at Boston Children's Hospital noticed a spike in asthma outbreaks in certain neighborhood clusters, they decided to do something about it. They launched the Community Asthma Initiative. Triggers for asthma are well-known, dust, mold, pest, mice, and even overuse of certain cleaning products can cause trouble. They realized that if you could treat the environments in the patient's home, that might reduce the need to treat the patient in the emergency room. The home visiting efforts work with children and families that have been identified through their hospitalizations and emergency room visits as an identification of having poorly controlled asthma, and also it's a teachable moment when families are open to making changes in terms of care and environment uh, within the home. Dr. Elizabeth Wood heads the program and says the first step is to identify the frequent flyers, those kids who make repeated trips to the emergency room. Then they match with the community health worker who visits their home several times and assesses the home for asthma triggers. And they work on three areas, understanding asthma itself, understanding the medications and the need for control medications, and then working on the environmental issues within the home. Families are given everything from HEPA filter vacuum cleaners to air purifiers. They are told not to clean with certain toxic products, and the homes are monitored for the presence of pests or rodents. The result, says Dr. Wood, has been pretty dramatic. What's remarkable is that there was a 56% reduction in patients with any emergency department visits and 80% reduction in patients with any hospitalization. And while this program is expensive, about $2,400 per family, there is a return on investment in reduced hospital cost and healthier children. The program has been so successful, it's being deployed in other hospital communities around the country. The Community Asthma Initiative a simple reshifting of resources aimed at removing the cause of disease outbreaks in the community, leading to healthier patient populations, thus significantly reducing the need for hospital care. Now that's a bright idea. This is Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Margaret Flinter. And I'm Mark Maselli. Peace and health. Conversations on Healthcare broadcast from the campus of WESU at Wesleyan University, streaming live at WESUFM.org, and brought to you by the Community Health Center. Mm-hmm.